Aloha, this is Catherine Cruz. Welcome to The Conversation. It's Friday, May 12th. The majestic portrait of Hawaii's Queen Liliuokalani left Iolani Palace last November. It began a long journey across the Pacific and the continent to our nation's capital, where it's now on display at the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery. It was a politically sensitive move, but some believe a necessary one to preserve a treasure of Hawaiian history, part of the legacy of our last monarch. It marks the 125th anniversary of the Spanish-American War. Some say the exhibit fills a void in the halls of a federal museum, serving up an unusually exhibit of portraits and politics. We also share a powerful moment in time as members of Hawaii's Royal Societies travel to Washington, D.C. to see how Hawaii's story was being told. And political historian Tom Kaufman reviews the exhibit, shedding light on a dark part of our nation's history. The conversation starts after the headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Mexican authorities say they will no longer be issuing travel permits to migrants heading toward the U.S. border. NPR's Ader Peralta reports it comes just as the pandemic-era Title 42 comes to an end. Mexico has been in lockstep with a U.S. policy that raises the requirements for migrants seeking asylum. The country has agreed to receive non-Mexican immigrants deported from the U.S. In the past, the U.S. had to deport migrants to their home country. Now, the U.S. often simply buses them back to Mexico. The two countries view this policy as a way to discourage migration from Latin America. And now, Mexican authorities are adding one more hurdle. Migrants will no longer be given transit documents, and that means those still aiming to enter the U.S. would have to sneak through Mexico and risk being jailed. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City. As the respective sides in the debate work to hammer out a deal on the debt ceiling, the Congressional Budget Office says this year's projected budget shortfall has jumped by $130 billion. President Biden and Republican lawmakers have been negotiating terms of the annual debt ceiling increase. Biden wants the borrowing limit raised without condition, while Republicans are seeking deep spending cuts. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said the cost of not reaching a deal is high. There is a lot of urgency. We're talking about potentially millions of jobs uh, being threatened because of what House Republicans are doing. We're talking about potential uh, devastation to our retirements account uh, for American families. Uh, so this is an incredibly important point that we're in. It's expected President Biden and top congressional leaders will meet again next week to discuss raising the borrowing limit. Elon Musk has announced that NBC Universal's head of advertising will become Twitter's new CEO. NPR's Bobby Allen reports Musk still will be the social media site's owner and oversee product development. Musk says he is handing the reins of Twitter over to Linda Yaccarino. She has led the advertising side of NBC Universal. Now she'll take over Twitter during its most turbulent period ever. And as the platform is desperate to stop advertisers from bolting from the site, one of Twitter's biggest challenges for Musk has been trying to find ways to make money. Most of Twitter's revenue comes from advertising. But since the site has become unpredictable under Musk, its finances have been under tremendous stress. Analysts say Musk tapped Yaccarino because of her deep relationships with marketers and ad agencies. And while she will be CEO, it appears Musk will still be the ultimate decision maker at Twitter. Bobby Allen, NPR News. Streaming video service Netflix says it intends to look at ways of reducing its spending by as much as $300 million this year. According to people familiar with the matter, the company is saying at least part of the cost cutting is being driven by the fact a plan to crack down on password sharing has been pushed out further. That change is expected to generate new revenue for the company. Down end of the week on Wall Street, the Dow fell eight points. You're listening to NPR. 
Former NBA All-Star player Dwight Howard is in hot water in China. That's after he appeared in a promotional video for Taiwan. Fans in China are now criticizing Howard for indicating he supports Taiwan's independence from China. NPR's Emily Fang has the story. Howard's been playing for a Taiwanese basketball team since last year after leaving the L.A. Lakers. And he appeared in a recent promotional video with Taiwan's Vice President William Lai, in which Howard says he has, quote, a whole new appreciation of this country since moving to Taiwan. That rubbed basketball fans in China the wrong way because China believes Taiwan is not a country, but rather a province of China. This is not the first time professional sports has gotten caught up in Chinese politics. Two years ago, a tweet from a Houston Rockets manager supporting anti-government protests in Hong Kong caused China to briefly boycott showing NBA games on television. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. Scientists say a disease dubbed white nose syndrome that has decimated the North American bat population appears to be showing signs of easing. The fungus, which has killed millions of bats across the continent, was first detected in a New York State cave in 2006. It causes bats to wake up early from winter hibernation, with them often dying of exposure or starvation. The Vermont Department of Fish and Wildlife says that state's largest bat colony has shown some signs more bats are able to tolerate the disease and also may be passing on resistant traits to their offspring. Crude oil futures prices lost ground for a third consecutive week. Oil down 83 cents a barrel to 70.04 a barrel in New York. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. Capital One is proud to support NPR Music and the Tiny Desk Contest. Capital One, what's in your wallet? And the Doris Duke Foundation. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. This week on Science Friday, the end of the COVID health emergency. Let's hope we learn the lessons of what has happened for the future preparedness and response. Dr. Anthony Fauci joins us. Plus, your questions about the science of Star Trek. Space, the final frontier. All on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, specializing in residential and commercial building projects. Learn more about services at greenbuildinghawaii.com. Tune to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Just after daybreak on a November morning last fall, a Royal Hawaiian moving van pulled onto Iolani Palace grounds to receive very precious cargo. The oil painting of Queen Liliuokalani seen on display on the first floor of the only palace in our nation was taken off the wall and placed in a special wooden crate. The Royal Order of Kamehameha was on hand to send off the gold leaf portrait with an oli, a chant asking for protection on this journey. 
Paula Akana, the executive director of the Friends of Iolani Palace, shared that the portrait was to be part of a spring exhibit in our nation's capital. We kind of look at this as the queen went to Washington, D.C. many times to try to tell her story, and it fell on deaf ears in many, many ways. And this time, it's the federal government telling her story for all the world to hear. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what the story is. But when you walk into the exhibit, because I've kind of walked through the National Portrait Gallery, the very first thing you're going to see is this magnificent portrait. But it's really bittersweet to see her leave. The portrait is on loan to the palace by the Hawaii State Archives. Chief Archivist Adam Jansen says this is an opportunity for conservationists to clean the oil painting and to repair the Goldie frame for future generations. This is a really unique opportunity from my perspective of two things. One, being able to tell Hawaii's story on a large global scale and getting a little something back for the people of Hawaii that, that we couldn't do ourselves. Uh, to wit, in order to borrow the painting, the National Portrait Gallery is going to put a significant amount of money into cleaning and restoring, particularly the frame. They're going to strengthen it and they're going to regild it. So when it comes back, it should look as beautiful as the day it was originally created. And is this the first time that we know that it's moving across oceans here and across the continent? My understanding is yes, it's only made one short trip over to Washington Place and then back. And other than that, it's been in the palace for its entire life. So this this grand journey, I think, is also very symbolic as Her Majesty made this same trip to D.C. to plead her case. And now this Cogswell portrait of her is going to be telling that story again in Washington, D.C. And it was a big deal, I understand, taking this portrait off the wall uh, because it's hung there for so long. But the painting itself is in pretty good shape. Yes, and that was one of the, the challenges, is there really wasn't documentation how it was mounted onto the wall. So we were very fortunate that the National Portrait Gallery does this all over the world. So they flew in four art handlers from a specialized company who have vast experience and understand these things to make sure it could it could come off the wall safely and do a physical examination before this even occurred. Is it safe to transport overseas? And fortunately, the answer came back. The portrait, the canvas is in really good shape. It's clean, doesn't need to be stretched. But the frame itself really needs to be addressed. It's, it's had some wear and tear on it and a little bit of termite damage, and the joints are loose. So they're going to clean up, tighten up, and then re-gild parts of it as well. And as this portrait makes its way across the continent, I mean, it's being trucked over from one end to the other. And again, that's the, the experts handling this. It's absolutely amazing. It is being escorted from the time it left the palace to the time it gets on the airplane. It's going to have folks in L.A. waiting to receive it there, immediately get loaded onto a truck, and then have a team of drivers drive it nonstop just, you know, just to, for gas until it gets to where it needs to go at the Portrait Gallery in D.C. How long will that journey take? Do we have any idea? They, they are estimating it's, it's going to take some 30-some-odd hours to get there. And then the Smithsonian staff will be on the other end to receive it? Yes, and, and they're going to take it. Again, they're going to do a physical inspection. They're going to remove the canvas from the frame, and then they're going to send the frame to one of the finest restorers on the East Coast. 
So again, it's an opportunity that we don't have. They're going to be able to leverage all of their infrastructure and their contacts to really give it the best care that that possibly can happen. And as this exhibit opens in April, uh, you know, this is a politics of this Pacific region. You know, there are stories that haven't been told. And so I'll be curious to see, you know, what gets presented, because, you know, my understanding is it's going to talk about the Spanish-American War, right, uh, and, and then our part in all of this. And, and to me, that is the really fascinating aspect to it. You know, they're, they're recognizing the 125th anniversary of this huge expansion because of the Spanish-American War, the invasion of the Philippines, the annexation of Hawaii. But they're doing it through a lens of examining the debates around U.S. imperialism and the effect it had on the people living in these areas to address the realities of their loss of self-determination. So the fact that the federal government is telling the story from that perspective in this day and age, I think, is, is very, very relevant because what we're seeing with this last election cycle is this rise of hyper-nationalism and all of these laws coming out where you can't teach any history in school unless the U.S. is a hero of the story. And that's not the reality of it. You know, anybody who studied history knows that there were a lot of things that we need to learn these lessons so we don't make these same mistakes. So the fact that they're telling this story, I think, is, is very important because they're anticipating a, a million people are going to see this exhibition. And, and it's particularly because they're focusing on Her Majesty that in, in their own words that the, the, this large painting creates a focus on a woman, a native Hawaiian, and a person of col uh, color. And all of those factors uh, have a presence in the exhibition to serve as undergirding tenants of this story. So the, the painting is just so impressive. And my understanding is as soon as you get into the gallery, that is going to be the first thing everybody sees. And, and it's going to seem me larger than life and incredibly majestic. And we understand that the uh, royal order, you know, has been there throughout, you know, as this painting was getting taken down from the, the palace wall there. They were there this morning uh, sending it off and will be there when this exhibit opens in April. That is correct. And, and that was one of my asks is that the National Portrait Gallery reach out to the royal societies to make sure that they have some ability to make sure that things are done appropriately, you know, everything is pono, and that they have an opportunity to pay homage uh, to the Queen's portrait as she makes this, this journey again to D.C. Yeah, so the proper protocol for the Queen, and while we will be without her for a while, we hope that uh, the trade-off is that uh, we get that portrait uh, in tip-top shape, and then she can be preserved uh, for future generations. Yes, and, and again, the fact that they can tell this story on a stage on, on such a level we could never hope for, I think it is really going to be advantageous to educate people about what Hawaii went through. Okay. Anything else you want to add just about this? I mean, the palace is decorated, you know, to honor uh, King Kalakaua's birthday later this week. So it was just really quite a spectacle this morning, you know, to see everything all dressed up as, as the Queen's portrait made its way down the stairs. It really was an incredibly powerful experience, and I would encourage anybody who has the ability to go see this exhibition. It's definitely going to be worth seeing. 
That was state archivist Adam Jansen, who spent the morning tending to the logistics of transporting an oil painting of Hawaii's last reigning monarch. The portrait was flown to the West Coast, where it made the nonstop journey to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. This story originally aired November 14, 2022. And as Jansen noted, an exhibit we're seeing. Today, we hanaho our stories about the Smithsonian exhibit featuring the Queen's portrait as HPR was there to cover the opening in April. Just joining us, this year marks the 125th anniversary of the Spanish-American War. It was called a splendid little war, short-lived with little bloodshed. To mark that point in history, the Smithsonian's Portrait Gallery unveiled a powerful new exhibit. It's titled 1898, U.S. Imperial Visions and Revisions. It attempts to fill in the missing indigenous perspectives. What did the native people of Puerto Rico, Cuba, the Philippines, Hawaii, and Guam gain or lose in the process of the transfer of power from Spain to America in 1898? Empire or Republic? It challenges you to examine the political history of America, given its own struggle to win independence from Britain in the Revolutionary War. HPR was there for a media tour before the exhibit opened last month. It includes a portrait of Queen Liliuokalani. Here's Kate Clark LeMay, co-curator and historian at the National Portrait Gallery. When you think of the War of 1898, usually people have this sort of one narrative, you know, the so-called splendid little war. And that is exactly what this Harper's Weekly pictures. Um, if you come close, you can see the eagle whose wings are creating like a halo around the Capitol. Within the crest of arms are the different uh, new uh, possessions of the United States. In 1901, they were celebrating the inauguration of President McKinley's second term. Uh, but like the commissioners from Cuba and the Philippines and Puerto Rico, Queen Liliuokalani from Hawaii was coming, making many trips to Washington, D.C. to negotiate for her people. And in 1908, this portrait was taken in Washington, D.C. Um, during a trip that she made to ask for reparations uh, for payment of the land that was seized from her without payment. And in this particular trip, the newspaper reports that she asked for $50,000, which to today's standards is about $200,000. But I've heard of accounts that she was owed up to $20 million. Um, so it was a very long fight that the queen maintains for her entire life um, to ask for justice for her people. For the past six years, LeMay and Taina Caragal, curator of painting, sculpture, and Latino art and history at the National Portrait Gallery, led the effort to better tell this story. It was a narrative that they felt was missing in the halls of this federal institution. Caragal hails from Puerto Rico, and Kate LeMay has a keen interest in naval maritime history. Thanks to the duo and their staff, the exhibit helps us to see how the island's political struggles differed and yet were the same. This was a turning point in U.S. history, but also in the history of all the lands that the United States claimed, right? And so in those lands, 1898 has 
historical resonance. People know what it means. People understand this transition. But here, it's not a year that is at the forefront of public memory. And we wanted to bring it forward as, as an important year for people to understand a history that still has relevance today. For me, as a Puerto Rican and as a specialist in Latino history, you know, as I remember the very first few times I walked through the museum after being appointed to my job, thinking to myself, wow, the main year through which I relate to the United States as a Puerto Rican is not in any way pinpointed through these hallways. There are very, very vague allusions to it. There were only two portraits at the time, Dewey's portrait and Leonard Wood's portrait, and that was pretty much it, you know? And I thought to myself, how, how can you be charged with representing a population that is not there in the collection if you don't address the historical chapter that puts that population in relation with the US, right? And that's the case for Puerto Ricans, but it's the case, you know, it's a question that Cubans could ask, that Chamorus could ask that Hawaiians could ask, uh, Filipinos could ask. And so we thought it's really important to address it. And so here we are. I guess I think of this exhibit as being so important now because the U.S. is fortifying its position in the Indo-Pacific. Mm -hmm. And to kind of look back at this history, it's just, it's fascinating. It's, it has a through line of, of consequences that many people are aware of. Uh, particularly in the Pacific, and some people aren't, and it's sort of an afterthought for people who maybe have never been to Guam, or maybe have never been to Hawaii or the Philippines. And as a someone who's interested in military history, I like how art helps animate that history. I like that it helps us remember. It's bringing to life some of these people who otherwise might have been lost, you know, to to this history. Also, you know, the, the fact that the United States is renewing its relationship with the Philippines in Subic Bay, I, I find that very interesting. The fact that the U.S. is expanding its military installations in Guam, I recognize that this is a painful history and it's not an easy history. And so we should be talking about it. At the start of the tour, you took us to a portrait and you said it was a metaphor kind of for this exhibit. I mean, this was the splendid little war, the Spanish-American War, but that year is just so pivotal. Absolutely, yes. That was a portrait by Francisco Oyer, who is a Puerto Rican painter, very important in the second half of the 19th century and early 20th century. And it's a portrait of William McKinley, who was the president of the United States as the U.S. went to war with Spain. And so what I find fascinating is that Oyer is mainly known as an artist who conveyed Puerto Rican identity through his artwork. And here he's painting a portrait of a U.S. political figure. And he has in his hand a map of Puerto Rico that is dated July 25th, 1898. So that's the year that, that's the day that U.S. vessels arrive in the Bay of Guanica and that the war arrives to Puerto Rico, you know? And so Oyer recorded that moment. And at the same time, if you look at the work, you can see a metaphor, not just for the process of the transition of power from Spain to the U.S. in Puerto Rico, but for the expansion process for the U.S. 
If you replace that map by the map of the Hawaiian archipelago or the Philippine archipelago or Cuba or Guam, you can get the sense that the future of these lands laid in the hands of the United States. And that's just powerful, I think. And the connection with the Native Americans I thought was fascinating too, you know, that, that a lot of these officers trained in those early wars. They did, yeah, I thought that was fascinating too. We recognize that the 13 colonies, you know, expanded at the, at the cost of other people, other indigenous people to North America. And really you can't talk about U.S. expansion without addressing the Indian Wars and the resistance to that expansion. And the fact that the U.S. military officers were learning the ropes of colonization within their own continent and then took those lessons overseas, that was sort of like a light bulb moment for me. And, you know, other historians are addressing this, like Catherine Bjork has a really good book called Prairie Imperialism out. So there's some new research that's being done to kind of uncover these chapters of military history that I think this show reflects. And I don't know if, if you have a particular favorite image or document in this exhibit. I mean, you, you folks have spent years working on this. Yes, that is a tricky question because I have so many <laughs> artworks that I really like. And of course, the Auger painting of McKinley comes to mind immediately. But also that photograph uh, that our curatorial assistant Carolina Maestre found in the Eugenio Maria de Hostos papers at the Library of Congress. This very blurry photograph, and we actually have just a reproduction of it here, but it's a very blurry photograph that captures representatives from Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and Cuba who came before the ratification of the Treaty of Paris to Washington, D.C. to try to have a say in the process to try to have agency when, as we know, the Treaty of Paris had just been signed in December between Spain and the U.S., deciding upon all of these lands without any representation from them. So it's a very powerful testament to this collective moment of worry. And, and it's a photograph that hasn't had much circulation, you know, even though the presence of these people was documented at the time in the press. There were no visuals surrounding that presence. And so that's just an incredible document. And what about you, Kate? Well, I traveled to Hawaii twice, and I met with people, scholars, curators, people who have real history, you know, in Hawaii. And I learned about the queen and that portrait, the Grand Manor portrait of her by William Cogswell from 1892. It was so meaningful to be able to organize that loan, to work with the Hawaiian community on it. And now she's in our galleries, and I recognize that this is her, a continuation of her diplomacy, a continuation of her voice in Washington, D.C., being heard and being put forward from a federal museum. And I know that that is very significant in, in the long history of 
the Hawaiian royal government. Well, I thank the two of you and your team for putting this show together because I think it provides context to areas whose histories may have been glossed over in previous books or shows or exhibits. So I think it does provide a really valuable story for these different islands and its place in the U.S. history. Anything else that you want to just add in to the people out there? The show can't go to these places. It just is so marvelous that it's going to be here for a while. But anything else you just want to say to the audience that you think this might resonate with? Absolutely. Well, we want to thank the many people with whom we consulted in Guam, in the Philippines, in Hawaii, in Puerto Rico, in Cuba, and here in the United States as well. There were so many generous scholars who helped us understand these histories and the nuances to them, who directed us to artworks and important documents that had to be seen here. And, and actually, we had the fortune of recording a audio component to the exhibition that will be accessible online and also through our galleries. There are certain artworks with QR codes that people can scan to hear the voices of many of those scholars. So we're incredibly grateful to them for their participation and for their support of our exhibition. And for the outreach uh, for folks who may be able to hopefully access some of this online, there's a book coming out later this year? There is a book coming out. We're really proud of it. We worked hard, published with Princeton University Press. It'll be available in September. It features prefaces from people like Hiloha Johnston and Neil Weir. So these are two people that Hiloha lives in Hawaii and Neil is from Guam. We wanted to make sure that we featured the voices of people whose histories are intermingled with, with this 1898 history. So if there are folks that are coming to D.C. over the next 10 months, then this would be the opportunity to, to see these stories and hear the stories. Yep, and you can buy the book if you can't come. There's also our website that Taina mentioned, and it has these audio components of experts like Noe Noe Silva, like Tori Latia, like Hiloha Johnston as well. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That was Kate Clark LeMay and Taina Caragall, co-curators of a new exhibit at the Smithsonian. So if you find yourself in our nation's capital, that exhibit at the National Portrait Gallery runs till February 2024. If you're just tuning in, Hawaii Public Radio was in Washington, D.C. when the portrait of Queen Liliuokalani, Hawaii's last reigning monarch, was on display as part of a new Smithsonian exhibit. A group from Hawaii made the trip. It included members of the Hawaiian Benevolent Societies, the Royal Order of Kamehameha, the Sons and Daughters of Hawaiian Warriors, Ahahui Makakawa, and the Queen Kahumanu Society, Ahahui O Kahumanu. Also on hand were staff from Iolani Palace and the Hawaii State Archives. They were there to hear the telling of the political stories behind the portraits. For those in that room that day, it was a mix of pride and pain. 
In a private gathering before the official public opening of the exhibit, the Hawaii contingent chanted the Queen's genealogy and sang Hawaii Ponoi, and throughout, tears flowed as the music haunted the halls of the portrait gallery. the Queen story presented. Here's co-curator Kate Karklamay leading a pre-opening tour for national media. Queen Liliuokalani inherited a throne that was troubled. In 1893, her reign was overthrown through a coup d'etat. And this was a coup that was organized by Anglo businessmen, if you'll follow me, um, who were descendants of the first missionaries from New England. And this is a portrait of Harriet Bradford Tiffany Stewart, who came over to Hawaii from New England in 1823. She was on the second boat of missionaries. Some of their descendants included Lauren Thurston, who was the mastermind behind the overthrow. And he organized with other Anglos uh, the so-called Committee of Safety, and then overthrew the Hawaiian government. And this was not without a lot of resistance, obviously, from Native Hawaiians. This beautiful quilt, you can see the flag of Hawaii that surrounds the coat of arms of the Hawaiian kingdom. And so people would gather, loyalists would gather, and they would have this as a symbol in their home to symbolize their own allegiance to their queen. They also could see that in 1898, the annexation was coming. They, the people of Hawaii were uh, very aware that this is a momentum that was building. And so in 1897, they organized the Ku'e petitions, which consisted of 27,000 signatures of men and women, Native Hawaiians, who did not want to uh, become annexed to the United States which was through joint resolution that it means a total vote count of both House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. So that is not a ratified treaty. And people to this day are participating in the Hawaiian sovereignty movement because they believe that that is not a legal annexation. And we know the Queen's request to be reinstated fell on deaf ears and Hawaii would be annexed and the monarchy would come to an end. The telling of the Queen's story in this federal museum was deeply felt. Here's Arthur Ayu of the Royal Order of Kamehameha. From the moment that we went in that first morning to conduct our protocol and our blessing, it was just overwhelming and emotional. And you know, you could just feel the mana of the Queen in the room. And you know, that portrait is so powerful and it's hopeful that the story that we have to share will be shared amongst others and realizing that you know we're not the only ones that have the same story you know the others from Puerto Rico from Cuba from the Philippines uh, from Guam you know we all share 
the same story. You know? And then hopefully the truth of that will come to light. You know, I keep thinking that I just saw this quote. In order to right a wrong, we must shed the light of truth. So it's my hope that this exhibit will shed light of truth. We also just saw the Kuei petitions and, and it, it was very impressive for those that had family members who signed that thing. Um, I don't know, just your thoughts on being able to see the original documents. Again, another powerful moment uh, this weekend. So I, I actually requested for one of the pages uh, of my great-grandmother, Josephine Ayu. Uh, just so happened when the page came out, um, Ikaika Bantolina came next to me and he pointed down to a name. He goes, oh, that's my tutu. And literally just above Ikaika's tutu was my tutu. Uh, so, and they were both named Josephine. So it was, it, it was an aha moment for both of us. But just the fact that these pages are here and we actually saw you know, um, the signatures so that was another wow moment for me personally, uh, that I actually have Coco on that paper. And that was Arthur Ayu of the Royal Order of Kamehameha, who was there in Washington, D.C. this weekend for the opening of the 1898 exhibit at the National Portrait Gallery. Other members shared their pride in seeing the handwriting on the fragile papers, including Ikaika Mantolina. So who is it in your family that has signed this? Josephine Wahine Kapu. She's on my maternal side. Um, she then married a Mali'i Kapu. The Wahine Kapus are from Kohala and Kona area as well as Hana and um, Kahakuloa. And finding these names out, like, there's a lot of Wahine Kapus, but this particular one, she's in my genealogy, so she's my Kupuna. And how old was she when she signed? 21, yeah. And another member's eyes scanned the documents, looking for his relative's signature. Just one entry, a last name, and the age when the document was signed. Are you? This person was 65 years old who wrote this, but I'm not sure if it's Connie Wahine. But it's your relative, your family. Yeah, it's my, it's my last name, this. <laughs> and then your first name is? Russell. You're Russell. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No first name one? No. Well, in the olden days, they only had one name, and most of them. You see, only get one name. Majority is one. This, this is 1897. And I'm like, no, what is the significance of this name? Because this, this last name is related to our last name. And so all your family knew is that they signed this petition? Well, you I found it when I went through the book. You know, the I went through the whole book, look all the people that I know and let them know. Well, you guys' family name, right? Is in the book. And I marked all the pages. But my page, my page number is different from this page number. I don't know why. Because when Adam asked me, hey, send me your page again, I did. I want different, oops, I want different page number on top. And there you go, trying to make sense of Hawaii's history. We share a moment in time. And so we leave you as a group, left the exhibit with one last tribute. The Queen's song, O Makalapua, talks about making a flower lay for Hawaii's queen.
Stay with us. After the break, we talk with historian Tom Kaufman about the politics of 1898. He wrote a review of the exhibit at the National Portrait Gallery. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dr. Neil Thies, author of Notes on Complexity. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about human existence in a conscious and alive universe. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. As a child in grade school in Guam, I recall learning to recite this pledge with my right hand over my heart. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. It was a powerful exhibit that stirred that memory and brought it to my consciousness. But does the history of our country truly reflect that, liberty and justice for all? The Smithsonian exhibit is entitled 1898, Imperial Visions and Revisions. It revolves around the Spanish-American War and the struggle for independence playing out across the islands of Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, Guam, and Hawaii. HPR was there for a media preview tour before the official opening. Here's co-curator Taina Caragal, head of painting sculpture, Latino art and history at the National Portrait Gallery. She sets the stage for U.S. expansionism with the snapshot of what was happening in Puerto Rico. Many people who look to the U.S. as a force for democracy and modernization and an economic engine and who were hopeful. At the same time, you have, as the transfer of power happens, people like Eugenio Maria de Hostos, in this portrait by Francisco Allen, who are coming to the U.S. and demanding that the United States be true to its principles and take into account the will of Puerto Ricans. Also happening at the time, the lead up to a bloody fight for independence in the Philippines. Here's historian and co-curator Kate Clark LeMay. So when the United States entered the war with Spain, 
what, how did that affect the Philippines? It, there was a ceasefire in the War of 1898 in August. And then in December, there was the Treaty of Paris. And in this treaty, the United States purchased the Philippines from Spain for $20 million. Filipinos, especially those in Luzon, under the leadership of Aguinaldo, were not about to cede their independence. It took a long, bloody battle against U.S. troops for the Philippines to finally gain their independence, but at a high cost of life for their people. We talked to political historian and author Tom Kaufman, who reviewed the exhibit in the Star Advertiser. It's a period of history that he's researched and written about. My generalization is that I think it's really a good thing that they did the exhibit. It's a really remarkable thing they did. They have flown in the face of prevailing winds against talking critically and thoughtfully about some of the darker aspects of America's past. And it's sort of like, you know, imperialism is the sort of the geopolitical variation of systemic racism. The two were really closely interconnected in American history. So, you know, I think it's really all to the good that the exhibit occurred. You wrote the book Nation Within, the American Occupation of Hawaii, and that thread is something that is woven, you know, throughout this exhibit. What do you think was lacking? I think it's in the nature of a portrait gallery to have pieces and the challenge of you know all the captions and the positioning and so on is how you connect the pieces and you know i have the script and the panels and the images for the whole thing and i studied them my reaction was that a couple of levels of critique and i think very serious deficiencies one is that the exhibit started really heavily with Teddy Roosevelt, the expansion of the U.S. Navy and the fighting with the Spanish in Cuba. And the imagery that most school children have been taught is something about Teddy Roosevelt charging up San Juan Hill on a horse, right? And the reality was that the American foreign aim of American foreign policy, much more importantly, was to control the sea lanes of the North Pacific for both trade and military purposes. In the process, the Spanish-American War was a perfect foil for that. Spain was very weak militarily. Its, its empire was several centuries old, crumbling. Its navy literally was crumbling, and the Spanish-American War began in Manila Harbor with a unilateral attack by uh, the American Pacific Fleet. And we sank that Spanish Navy in, in a matter of a morning with no loss of American life. I'm advocating for understanding that Hawaii was not only a part of this, but very central to it. And that what America most wanted was the deep draft naval harbor in the middle of the Pacific, which was named Pearl Harbor. And that was one. The second, and you know, I really, I really should interview you, Catherine. But 
um, there were a lot of provocative elements in the exhibit and a lot of wonderful elements, I think. How well did they connect? To what extent do you think they left people with an overall understanding of the theme, which was literally, you know, 1898 imperial, you know, visions and revisions? How well do you think they connected the dots? I'm coming from the position that I'm from Guam. And I did not realize, I did not connect the dots. And so this exhibit helped me to do that. I also learned a a part of history that I was not aware of about Guam. I mean, I knew we were under the naval governors. You know, we were under the Spanish for 200 years. But it never quite sunk in until, you know, you see it in black and white. And and the Guam exhibit, you know, it's thin, you know, because not a lot of things, I think, exist, you know, after 200 years under the Spanish. But... What I saw was pretty stark and pretty black and white, you know, like I didn't realize that it was 50 years that we were under military control and we had so many naval governors and some were good and some were not so good. I read a, a, a portion in there where they apparently wanted all the Spanish priests to leave the island and go back to Spain. And for an island that has been so heavily, I guess, blended with Catholicism, I'm sure that was very hard for them to to take. Probably some of them beloved priests were kicked back to Spain. And and apparently they were told, the Chamorros were told, you can't celebrate your cultural, you know, events, you know, the fiestas. And the things are very ingrained in our culture today. So that was very surprising to me. So I did not realize that. And then I was coming at it from the perspective of, you know, being with the Hawaii contingent and and was really focused on the Kuei petitions and how— their appeals, you know, fell on deaf ears. But yet to learn the Guam history where we petitioned to, you know, have self-determination not once but eight times. And then to find my own relative, you know, his name, Gregorio Perez, on that sheet was really kind of startling. And you told me that your ancestry is partly Filipino as well. Yes. You made a connection there. Yes, absolutely. And I did not realize uh, the bloodshed. And I think that's to the good because people don't know. People today usually don't know that the Philippines was a colony taken over by the United States and that there was a war between the United States and Filipino insurgents, right? Yes, the bloodshed. I mean, there's a, a rifle, you know, there in the display, and it was just like... Wow, I did not realize that part of their struggle for independence. So it's interesting, particularly with the buildup, the strategic buildup in the Pacific today, which is what really hit home for me. We were along the route, the, the you know the Spanish galleons, and it was important for Spain and important for the U.S. The Philippine-American War went on for 14 years, and I think the exhibit number is there were about 250,000. Filipinos killed. There are estimates in the Philippines that that number approaches one million. It was a horrendous war that has really been forgotten in American history. Yeah, the splendid little war was not splendid for the Philippines. It was a painful exhibit to walk through because I learned so many things and because I was born on a military base in California. And, you know, I have a brother that was born in California, and we can vote for the president of the U.S. I have another brother and sister that live in Guam, and their vote doesn't count. 
So I'm torn. Yeah. I'm conflicted. You know, I'm coming from a military point of view, a military family. So, yeah, I'm still processing the exhibit in my in my heart and in my brain. I think your uh, story, your firsthand story uh, says, you know, supports my journalization. The exhibit is really all to the good because it's going to cause people to stop and think. Maybe the whole thing from my writer point of view wasn't so perfectly integrated, but it was a book. It was a portrait gallery, right? I know that they had hoped to have this exhibit travel, and I personally had hoped that it could come to Hawaii and Guam and the Philippines and Puerto Rico and Cuba, but it's not going there. It's going to be available in some form online, and there is the book. But I just thought, gosh, if I just got that feeling in the short time, you know, walking through those halls and looking at the images and looking at the at the board games, you know, naval supremacy, naval power, I just wish that more people could see it and make the connections between these different groups. Maybe we could appeal to our congressional delegation to pursue that, you know, because they're a dimension of the Smithsonian and they're funded by, you know, the United States government. And I feel very keenly that it should travel. Yeah, I agree with you completely. It should travel to all those destinations, but certainly should travel to Hawaii and Guam and Puerto Rico, which are still all part of the United States. The part that pained me was that not only did Hawaii's Queens, you know, appeals fall into fears, but so did the appeals from the other groups. The Puerto Ricans that went to Washington, D.C. to express their concerns and have a seat at the table, and they were not allowed. Yeah, that all is hard to process. Puerto Rico to this day is an overseas territory, and the, uh, periodically there are debates over statehood and in stalemate, and it's now 125 years after they were taken over by the United States. It's a lot to unpack politically, but, you know, the other thing, too, that struck me was you know, because I had just done my DNA and I'm a, a little bit Native American, and to learn that the military officers mm. had gotten their experience in the wars with the American Indians really hit home because I'd been doing some research on my husband's ties to the Revolutionary War and that whole struggle, breaking away from Britain. And so it just really was so ironic. Well, I think that the third or fourth portrait they had up was General Nelson Miles, who was an Indian fighter. And that means uh, essentially the war of either displacement or extermination. And they went from fighting Indians, literally, to fighting in the Philippines. Leonard Wood was in the exhibit, Dr. Leonard Wood, who was a right-hand person of Teddy Roosevelt, and he was an Indian fighter, and then he was literally in the Battle of San Juan Hill. And I remember doing basic army training at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, in the cold, in the freezing cold. So it's a little vignette of how deeply embedded these icons are, and to bring them out into, you know, rational understanding of what they signify, I think, I think it is really important. So I think your experience really says this exhibit matters, and let's hope we can get as much interest in Hawaii and around the country as possible. You know, the night of the 
opening of the gallery, Hai Lama Farden of the Order of Sons and Daughters of Hawaiian Warriors stood up and he just said, I challenge all of you in here to learn more, you know, about these places, about the Queen and Hawaii's history. And I think that was a very poignant moment, you know, and that I think that this exhibit just existing is, you know, kudos to the two curators for making sure that these voices are included. I would agree. Pretty powerful. So I hope you get to see it too. I'm, I'm planning on it, yeah. That was Tom Kaufman, political historian and author, sharing his thoughts about the Smithsonian exhibit, 1898, U.S. Imperial Visions and Revisions. It opened in April in our nation's capital and runs through February of next year. Kaufman wrote a book about the period, Nation Within, the History of the American Occupation of Hawaii. And that's it for this Aloha Friday. Share your thoughts about this time in our history. Call our talk back line and leave your comments, 808-792-8217. Or write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Our program is produced by Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. Backyard quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. <laughs>